Amen. Welcome again, everybody. Good to see you all in God's house today on this 4th of July weekend. We thank God for a wonderful nation that we live in, but we also need to keep our nation in prayer. Amen. Um, every time the 4th of July comes around, what I celebrate most is the freedom that I have in Christ. Because how many of you know freedom is not free? Somebody has to pay for it. Amen. And um, as we celebrate the 4th of July and the freedoms that we have in America um, because of the price that was paid for it, let us be ever mindful of what Jesus did for us on the cross, but let us also keep our nation in prayer. Remember, the scripture says, "It's if my people humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways, then I'll hear from heaven and heal their land. And God knows our land needs to be healed right now. There's a lot of enemy activity in our land. Our land is moving in a direction that is not right right now. Right is being called wrong. Wrong is being called right. And that's our job for the church to be a voice in these times. But thank God for everything that July 4th represents. And I pray that we would press in during this time to God even more and more. If you have your Bible, would you take it on out? If you need a Bible, raise your hands. The ushers will get them to you. I want to welcome all of our campuses that are tuning in from wherever you are, our television and online audience. We know God is going to speak to you today in a special way. If you have your Bible, would you hold it up nice and high? Let's go ahead and make this declaration of our faith. Ready, go. This is my Bible. It is my primary source of spiritual nourishment. I will read it every day and become all God wants me to be. My mind will be renewed. My life will be transformed. I will become fully surrendered to Christ. Therefore, will hide his word in my heart so I can be all that God has destined me to be. Amen. Would you remain standing in honor of God's word? We are going to the gospel of Luke, Luke chapter number five, and I'm going to begin in verse number one. The scripture says, so it was as the multitude pressed about him to hear the word of God that he stood by the lake of Gennesaret, which is also the Sea of Galilee, same thing, and saw two boats standing by the lake, but the fishermen had gone from them and were washing their nets. Then he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to push out a little bit from the land. And he sat down and taught the multitude from the boat. And when he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. But Simon answered and said to master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish and their net was breaking. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and they filled both the boats so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' at Jesus's knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. And so were also James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid, for now, from now on you will catch men. So when they had brought their boats to land, they forsook all and followed him. Today we are continuing in our series, He Amazes Me, where we are looking at the endless miracles of Jesus, because Jesus was a miracle-working 
machine. John tells us, and we've talked about this a lot, if all of the miracles that Jesus did were written down in books, the world would not be able to contain the volumes thereof. You can't help but be around Jesus and be touched by his miraculous power. And if your life hasn't been touched by the miraculous power of Jesus, I want to challenge you to examine whether you've been hanging around him as much as you need to because it is impossible to hang around Jesus without getting touched by his power but today I want to talk to you from the subject God has a miracle just for you God has a miracle with your name on it God has a miracle that has been tailor made just for you God's got a miracle just for you let's pray Father thank you for the word today thank you that it will have free course in our lives we open our hearts to it in Jesus name and everybody said, you may be seated. I remember when I was young in the Lord, I got saved about 14 years old, grew up in church, um, a Catholic church mostly. Um, but about 14, I started going to a church like ours and realized that I needed to be born again, gave my life to Jesus. And uh, God began to do miracles for me at a very young age. And some of the earliest miracles that I remember, the first one that I remember, is when God confirmed his call on my life. I was 14 years old, had just given my life to the Lord, and I knew immediately that I was called to preach the gospel. But um, if you knew me when I was 14, my life didn't match my calling. How many of you know it's not where you start, it's where you finish, amen? God doesn't always look at us based upon where we are. He based, He looks at us based upon where we're going. When he called Abraham, he worshiped the sun and the moon. When he called Moses, he was on the backside of a mountain after having committed murder. When he called the apostle Paul, he was an enemy of the church. It's not where you start, it's where you finish. But anyway, I said to myself, well, even though I feel called in the ministry, I don't think I could be called in the ministry because my lifestyle wasn't very ministry representative let's say. And so sure enough, I was in church and I would still go to church and, and uh, I was sitting on the second row. There was an evangelist there. Her name was Evangelist Jackie. And Evangelist Jackie was known to move in the gifts of the Holy Spirit, words of wisdom, words of knowledge, prophecy, um, gifts of healing, workings of miracles, all those kind of things. And at the end of the time that she preached, she would just kind of be led by the Spirit of God. And she would be calling people forward and she would just point people out and she'd say, come here. And she'd, she'd begin to just speak to their heart and tell them about things that was going on in their lives and just God would be touching them in a miraculous way. And I don't want to make eye contact with her because I didn't want her to call me out. You know, how many of you know you can't duck God? David said, if I make my bed in hell, you are even there. You're there. You can't run away from God. God will show up wherever you're at. And so I was keeping my eyes down and stuff like that. She just called me right out. She said, you, you, you. And I, I just kept my head down. And she said, you with your head down. She said, come here. And, and the Lord spoke to her. And here's what she said. She said, you're doubting whether you're called in the ministry. But God told me to tell you that despite what you think, you're a chosen vessel to preach the gospel across the entire world. And God is going to use you in a great way. And it was at that moment that God did that miracle just for me. So that I would fulfill my destiny. So that I would fulfill the purpose that God had for me. It was early on in ministry. Second miracle I remember just when I was first saved was a miracle that had to do with my wisdom teeth. How many of you know that if it concerns you, it concerns God? 
Doesn't matter if it's big, doesn't matter if it's little, God has a miracle with your name on it. And I was about 15 years old, I don't know, maybe 16 years old, somewhere in that neighborhood, had to get my wisdom teeth taken out, had watched all my friends get their wisdom teeth taken out, had seen the horror stories, the, you know, the, the big swollen cheeks looking like a chipmunk, can't eat solid food for about four or five days, lots of pain, all that kind of stuff. And I remember in my 15 year old faith, I went to the dentist and, um, and as soon as the nurse came in and began to put me out, my faith connected with God. I was praying. I began to cry and I knew that God's hand was going to be on me in that moment. They, I had four impacted wisdom teeth. They took them out in record time. It was like 20 or 22 minutes. That night, I ate a steak dinner. I had no swelling. I had, I had, I had no pain, no nothing. And it was God speaking to me at that moment at 15 years old in just a little miracle, a little miracle like preventing me from swelling up and having pain from getting my wisdom teeth taken out, that he was the God of miracles. The last miracle that I remember, again, just kind of right after I was saved, my parents, they were going through a divorce. And uh, thank God they have reconciled with one another, been married again to one another for 27 years after they got separated and divorced. So so God was good in that situation. But uh, in any case, they were going through a divorce and my world was falling apart. Let's not fool our ourselves, divorce hurts children. Let me say it again because sometimes we, we, we coddle ourselves into realizing or thinking that, well, kids will just get over it, they're resilient, so on and so forth. And we use that as a way to pacify us doing something that God says he doesn't want us to do. Now, I understand there are reasons for divorce and all of that kind of stuff, and I'm not trying to condemn anybody. But anyway, my my world was falling apart, and I would go up into my room, and I would just cry a lot and just call out to God. I remember one particular time I had a blow-up with my mom because there's tension in the home whenever there's divorce. Everybody is is not themselves and everybody reacts strongly and differently to things. Had a blow up with my mom. I was up in my room. I was crying and God invaded that room and I heard the audible voice of God. Literally heard the audible voice of God and he just simply spoke a few words to me. He said, don't worry my son. Everything will be okay. Hairs on the back of my head stood up. I turned around. I thought Jesus was right behind me. Didn't see him but I heard the audible voice of God. God did these miracles just for me. They were tailor-made just for me. Each one of them had an impact on me. They, they reassured me that Jesus was Lord. They, they comforted me in time of trouble to know that he would never leave me nor forsake me. They taught me that he's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. And they ensured that I would fulfill my destiny or the plan that God had for my life. Those are only a few of the miracles that God did for me. And as I begin to grow in my faith, God did more and more miracles for me, different times, different places, different circumstances, and the same God that did those miracles for me, that had a miracle with my name on it, guess what? He's got a miracle with your name on it. If you're sick, God's got a miracle just for you. If you're struggling financially, he's got a miracle just for you. If your family's falling apart, he's got a miracle just for you. If you're an emotional wreck, he's got a miracle just for you. If you need freedom from bondage, he's got a miracle just for you. He is a miracle-working God. Nothing is too difficult for him. All things are possible for him. He loves doing miracles. He wants to do miracles. He has literally a miracle with your name on it. And as we approach our text, we're going to see this miracle had Peter's name written on it. 
This miracle was specifically designed for Peter. God, who had a great plan for Peter, but Peter didn't know God had this great plan for him yet. He designed this miracle, and James and John just got in on it. How many of you know when you when God does a miracle for you, other people should get in on that miracle. Other people ought to be blessed by that miracle. Other people ought to be impacted by that miracle. And this miracle, it was designed for Peter. We're going to see. Without this miracle, I don't know if Peter would have became Peter. But he becomes Peter, everything that God designed him to be, and James and John get in on it. And so I want to give you some keys. How do you receive the miracle that God has for you? And and I, I felt the Holy Ghost uh, tell me to share this as we were praying for people. A lot of times people, when they come up for prayer, and rightfully so, um, they want God to touch them on the spot and give them their miracle right then and there. And God does that a lot of times. Thank God for the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Gifts of the Holy Spirit, one of them is the workings of miracles. Some, so in an instant, in a second, God can touch you and give you your miracle. But there's also another way to receive your miracle, and that is by exercising faith in the principles of the Word of God. And, and there will come a time in your life where you will have to exercise those principles in order to get your miracle. And, and so I want to teach you, what are those principles? How do I receive the miracle that God has just for me? Number one, you need to submerge yourself in God's word. Totally get immersed in it. Notice why the multitude, according to verse one, has come to Jesus. Interestingly enough, it's not for the same reason that they usually come to Jesus. When we read most of the stories about crowds around Jesus, they came around Jesus because they they were sick, they were diseased, and they wanted Jesus to do a miracle. They came around him to, to see miracles, and maybe that was part of the reason why they came to Jesus, but Jesus is, is on this boat, maybe he just pulled into shore, or maybe he's he just by the shore, and he has this great crowd pressing upon him, and the scripture makes it a point. It says, to hear the word that he spoke. Interesting. Not to see the miracles that he did, which is fine and wonderful, right? That's a good reason to, to want to be around Jesus. But they came to hear the word that he spoke. And Jesus is speaking this word, and there are three other people that are there when Jesus is speaking this word that the story really revolves around. Peter, James, and John. And they are hearing this, and after all, Jesus used Peter's boat as a pulpit. You remember that? He looked at Peter and he said, launch out into the deep as the people were pressing upon him so he could use his boat. Launch out from the shore, he said, actually, first. Launch out there. And he said, I want to use your boat, in essence, so I can preach to these people. And by the way, that's a good key for a miracle. By the way, if you're going to receive a miracle from God, you got to push out from the shore. You gotta get away from the safe places. You gotta get away from, you know, not wanting to put it on the line for Jesus. Matter of fact, most miracles require a step of faith that seems unsure. And which is an oxymoron because faith is being sure of what we expect and confident of what we do not see. But the instruction that God usually gives you in a situation is an instruction that makes you kind of think, hmm. Is that really going to happen? Push out from the shore, he tells him. So he borrows 
Peter's boat in order to speak this word. So by, by consequence, Peter is hearing this word and he's hearing this word and he's hearing this word and we're not told what he spoke to the crowd, but it so impressed Peter, James, and John that they were willing to do something that didn't make sense. They were willing to cast their nets back into the deep to go fishing after they fished all night and caught nothing. And why am I bringing this to your attention? Because the word of God is what gives us the oomph to believe. Our believing needs food. It needs fuel. And the word of God is the food that fills or fuels our faith. Listen to what Romans chapter 10 verse 17 says. It says, consequently, faith comes from hearing the message. That's the NIV version. What message? Well, listen to the NLT. It answers that question. It says, so faith comes from hearing, that is, hearing the good news about Christ. Well, what is the good news about Christ? There's a lot of people that would probably say a lot of different things. Can we just quote Jesus? Can we just say, see what Jesus said is the good news? Can we just look at what Jesus said is the gospel? Because a lot of people like to say, oh, they don't preach the gospel, and this one doesn't preach the gospel. This one's got the gospel light, and this one's got the gospel serious. What did Jesus preach? You ready for this? Luke chapter 4, verse 18 and 19. Jesus walks into the temple. Here's what he says. He said, the spirit of the Lord God's upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. The year of Jubilee. What is that? The year literally where all debts were forgiven, all property was returned, and all slaves were set free. That was the year of the Lord. Jesus said, I came with one message. To proclaim the year of Jubilee. That was the message that Jesus preached. For us, that means Jesus came to set the sinner free from a sin debt that we could not pay, whose penalty is death and eternal separation from God, so that we can receive abundant and eternal life. For us, that means Jesus came to give us back anything that the enemy has stolen from us. For us, that means that Jesus came in order that you and I would be free from all of the bondages that try to steal, kill, and destroy from us. That is the year of Jubilee. Debts forgiven, slaves set free, and everything that is stolen returned to you. That was the message Jesus preached. And when you hear that message over and over and over and over, by the way, that's not something called the faith message. That's something called the Jesus message. By the way, that's not the blabbing and grab it message. That's the Jesus message. That's what Jesus preached. If you want to get mad at somebody, get mad at Jesus. Jesus said he came to do exactly that. And if that is not the message that we are preaching, we are not preaching what Jesus preached. Jesus said, I came to set you free. I came to deliver you from every bondage in every circumstance that comes to steal, kill, and destroy in your life. Jesus, and when you hear that, 
And when you keep on hearing that and keep on hearing that, your faith gets stronger and stronger and stronger. And you begin to understand that if God spared not his only son, how shall he not with him freely give us all things? You begin to understand that the cross and the blood and the resurrection is not just a story. It is a covenant that God is watching over, waiting to perform in our lives. You begin to understand that no good thing will he withhold from you. You begin to understand that all the promises of God are yes and amen to the glory of God the Father by us. You begin to understand that the message Jesus preached empowers us so that we can believe and receive the miracle that God has for us. Submerge yourself in the word. You cannot believe God for something that he has apart from the word. Opening your Bible, listen to me carefully, only on Sunday, or forget about even open. Now we don't even open our Bibles on Sunday. We just look at the screen. Most Christians, sadly, do not open their Bible. And if you are not submerged in the word of God, it's going to be hard for you to receive. But if you'll get that word in your heart, if you'll keep sowing it in your heart, if you'll keep putting it in your heart, faith will arise. One author said this. It was an unknown writer. He said, this book is the mind of Christ, speaking of the Bible, the state of man, the way of salvation, the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy. Its precepts are binding. Its histories are true. And its decisions are immutable. Read it to be wise. Believe it to be safe. Practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, comfort to cheer you. It is the traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, the Christian's character. Here paradise is restored, heaven is open, and the gates of hell are disclosed. Christ is the grand subject. Our good is its design, and the glory of God is its end. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, guide the feet, read it slowly, frequently, prayerfully. It is a mine of wealth, a paradise of glory, a river of pleasure. Follow its precepts and it will lead you to Calvary, to the empty tomb and a resurrected life in Christ, to glory itself for all of eternity. What is he saying? He's saying we must realize the word of God is a lamp onto our feet and a light onto our path. It is a loin belt of truth. It is a weapon that we hide in our hearts so that we do not sin against God. It is the vehicle by which we renew our minds so we can experience the will of God. It is the very thing that God has exalted above his name. It is that which has been signed, sealed, and delivered in the blood of Christ. It is not the words of man, but the words of Almighty God. And you can take it to the bank. We need to submerge ourselves in the Word of God. But then number two, second key, how do I receive the miracle God has for me? You need to esteem God smarter than you. I'm just just letting that marinate for a minute. God, newsflash, ready? God is smarter than all of us. Let me say it again. God is smarter than all of us. What do you mean, pastor? Well, check this out. Verse number one. So it was, as the multitude pressed about him to hear the word of God, that he stood by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats standing by the lake, but the fishermen had gone from them and were washing their nets. Now, the word fisherman is an interesting word. It literally means masters of the sea. Peter, James, and John were not some guys who went out once in a while with their collapsible rod and reel and their red bobber and dug up some worms to catch some fish. That's not who they were. 
They were professional fishermen. They knew everything about fishing. They knew what equipment to use. They knew what the fish liked. They knew when the best time to go fishing was. And on and on and on. They were truly masters of the sea. Matter of fact, their fishing business was no small operation, which goes against, again, uh, you know, popular belief about the disciples in Jesus that they were all broke. Ever hear that before? They had a fishing business that had multiple boats. They had partners in their fishing business. That don't sound broke to me. I don't know how blessed it was, but it don't certainly sound broke to me. Verse 7 tells us they had partners in multiple boats, multiple boats in their fishing business. These men weren't just masters of the sea. They were entrepreneurial fishermen, but it gets better because these guys were not mild-mannered. They were typical, like what you consider a typical fisherman. They were gruff, Peter, James, and John. I mean, Peter was known to, you know, say a couple swear words every now and again. He was notorious for that, right? Of all the things we remember about Peter, what's one of the biggest things we remember about Peter? We remember that he denied Christ, and when he denied Christ, he cursed and swore a little bit, didn't he? We don't remember that he walked on water, but we remember that. And I think the reason why we remember that is because most of us haven't walked on water, but most of us have cursed a little bit. You just missed that. It just went right by, right over your head real quick. So Peter was a little gruff, right? And James and John were no better. They had a personality like, they were called the sons of thunder. You know why? Anybody that didn't agree with them, they wanted to call down fire from heaven on. And so these, they had nicknames. Peter was the rock and James and John were sons of thunder. And here these guys are. And, and the Bible tells us um, that when they were done working for the day, they were washing their nets. And these weren't tiny little nets, by the way. They were huge nets. One, one net could probably cover at least a whole section of the chairs. And, and it, would, it was a lot of work to pull these nets in, and then to wash the nets was 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 hours. I mean, you have to pull out all the seaweed and get out all the stones and get out all the little crab legs that you know broke off the crabs and all that. And it was tiring work. And the Bible says that they toiled all night. In other words, the word toil literally means that they were exhausted, exhausted, worked all night. Professional fishermen. Now Jesus, at this point, to them is just a rabbi. Jesus at this point to them is just a rabbi who worked in the carpentry business. And they are masters of the sea. So when it comes to fishing, and because of their personality, they don't take too kindly to somebody who doesn't do this for a living trying to tell them how to catch fish. Right? It's like somebody just been saved. You know, all of a sudden they come up to me after church. Well, now, pastor, you know, you said something that today that I don't agree with very much. Now, you can do that, by the way, anytime you want to. But just take it from me. If you've only been saved for a minute, you probably don't know more about the word of God than I do. And I'm not saying that arrogantly, but we have this way of trying to tell people who are experts in a particular field, this, that, and the other thing, you know, and this is how they perceived Jesus at, but something that Jesus said, perhaps it was in the words that he spoke, caused them to consider him who wasn't in the natural smarter than they were. Now, Pastor, why do you make such a big point about that? The reason why I make such a big point about that is because you and I would never say we're smarter than God. Nobody would ever say that. I mean, the epitome of arrogance to walk into a place and say we're smarter than God. In our mind, we know that, but can I tell you how we say it all the time in our actions? And how many of you know actions speak louder than words? And so along comes God, and for instance, God says, if somebody hurts you, you're to forgive them and not hold a grudge. But what do we do? We talk about them, we try to get even with them. And in essence, what we're saying by our actions is we're smarter than God. 
Or along comes God and God says, when you encounter a trial or temptation, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith produces patience. And when patience has a perfect work, you'll be perfect and entire, lacking nothing. God says that, but a trial comes into our life. We start talking about how bad it is, how unfair it is, and how how depressed we are. What are we in essence doing by our actions? God, we are smarter than you. You have a marriage disagreement. And the Bible says, do not let the sun go down on your wrath. And you go to bed without speaking to one another. What are we saying? God, we are smarter than you. God blesses us financially with whatever he blesses us with. And God says, the first 10%, bring it into my house and honor me with it. And what do we do? We go out and spend it, and we got bills, and we got this, and we got the other thing. And by our actions, what are we saying? God, we are smarter than you. God says, do not forsake the assembling of yourself together. And so much the more as we see the day approaching, and yet some people have made online their church home. What are they saying? God, we are smarter than you. Look how quiet it got in this Catholic church right here. We don't say we're smarter than God. Intuitively, no one would, 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 would process I'm smarter than God. But every time we choose willfully to act in a way that is opposite the way that God has told us to act because it doesn't compute or doesn't make sense to us, in essence, what we are standing on is that we are brighter than God. Our ways are better than God's ways instead of his ways being better than our ways. And we are saying, God, we have a wisdom that you don't know. I know you said we ought to do this, but there is a special exemption and a special grace for me. God, I don't need to know this because I'm really, really smart. God, I don't need to do this because I really know what's best about fishing. What if Peter and John and James said that to Jesus? They would have missed their miracle. You need to know God is smarter than you. Have you ever wondered how God knows We have a PhD, but still God is smarter. We have 50 years experience, and God is smarter. It might be popular opinion. It might be what the culture is saying is correct in a moment, but God is smarter. How does God know? Well, because God is the one who created us. God is the one who created the universe, the heavens and the earth. He knows how it works. He put the laws of gravity in emotion. He knows how to defy it. He put our body together in our mother's womb. We've been fashioned and formed all of our intricate parts. He knows how to fix it. He knows how our emotions work and how to tweak them. And God knows us better than we know ourselves. The Bible says he knows our thoughts before we think them. He knows our heart before anything enters into it. He knows our rising up and our laying down. He knows our future. He knows what makes us tick. He knew us in our mother's womb. He sewed us together. He knows he is not just omnipotent or all powerful. He's not just omnipresent and everywhere at the same time. He's omniscient. He knows everything there is to know about you, about me, about everything that concerns us. God is truly, really smarter than us and it would behoove us to submit to his instructions even if we think God is crazy. I'm preaching real good and you are just staring today. They needed to realize even though they were professional fishermen, God knew better. I have a fish story. Everybody's got a fish story. I was fishing with this one guy one time. He invited my wife and I over for dinner. The man had all the gear. 
I mean, he had the boat, he had the fishing rods, the fishing reels, he had the fishing boots, he had all the fishing gear, all the things that you, the lures and every, every different kind. And he said, you know, pastor, it's, it's five in the evening, the fish don't usually bite right now, but we'll go out and we'll try, we'll go out and we'll try. And if you know me, I don't like to lose at nothing. I know God's working on me in that area, right? I guess it's bragging if you can't back it up, but if you can back it up, it's just truth, right? And so I just, I just, I just hate to lose that stuff. And so we go out fishing, and we're fishing for about an hour, and you get a phone call, you know, it's time for dinner, and we got to go, Pastor. And neither one of us had caught nothing. And I had been teasing him and just saying, I'm going to outfish you. I I know I'm going to outfish you. I don't care. You got all this stuff. I got Jesus. I'm going to outfish you. And sure, I said, oh, well, just one more time. And I did like this. I said, in the name of Jesus, fish, bite that worm. And I threw it out there. I promise you, God is my witness. That worm hit the water, sunk down for about five seconds. Bam! Pulled that fish right in here, held it up like this. I said, I told you I was going to outfish you. See, we need to understand, we incorporate Jesus into whatever we're doing. And Jesus knows better. Now, I know that was just a ridiculous example. True story. God really did that for me. God said, I can't make my son lose. He don't like to lose. I got to make him win all the time. Incorporate Jesus. He's smarter than you. Third thing, if you're going to receive the miracle God has for you, you need to sow a seed. Watch this. Watch this. Verse number three. Then he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's. Now, most of us just read right past that. How many believe every word in the Bible is inspired by God? It's there for a reason. Which was Simon? And asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the multitude from his boat. Now, when we read this verse, it is so significant because it tells us that Peter let Jesus use his boat. And listen, this boat was a seed that Jesus used to advance the kingdom because he preached from it. It was also a boat that wasn't producing before he gave it to Jesus. It got zero before he gave it to Jesus. He gave it to Jesus, and after he gave it to Jesus, what happened? They got such a haul of fish that it began to sink their boat. They had to call over the other boat, and the fish haul was so great, it began to sink both boats. What am I telling you? When we sow a seed, Jesus will produce a miracle in our life. There is power in sowing seeds. Seeds are the actions that we take that Demonstrate that we are believing God for the miracle that we know he has with our name on it. There's power in our seed. Power to produce a harvest. Genesis chapter 8 verse 22 says, As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. Seed time and harvest. You know how most people read that? Harvest time. They leave out seed time. Can I, can I... I love, I love the saints. I really do. I wouldn't be a pastor if I didn't love the saints. But the saints got some screwy theology. The saints skip over stuff all the time. They go right to, uh, as long as the earth is, there will always be harvest. There is no harvest without no seed time. You cannot get, people, people are crazy sometimes. Believe in God for financial harvest, never sowed a seed into the kingdom of God to be used for the glory of God. How are you going to get a financial harvest? How is that possible? 
impossible. You cannot get a harvest unless you sow a seed. Some people want promotions without even having qualifications. If you have not sowed the seed of being qualified, how do you expect to get the harvest of being promoted? We have screwy theology because we overlook some of the things the Bible says and we need to understand there is every seed is pre-programmed to produce a harvest and every seed produces after its own kind. In other words, you can't sow lemon seeds and expect to get oranges. Can't sow apple seeds, expect to get watermelons. There's some people, well, you know, pastor, I don't sow financially. And we took the offering. We're not taking another one. So don't get nervous. Some of you get nervous because I'm talking about sowing financial seed. Relax. Well, pastor, you know, um, we sow our time. That's what we do. And you're expecting God for financial harvest? How's that work? Doesn't work like that. So a time seed, get a time harvest. So a financial seed, get a, the thing about financial seed, can I tell you what though? It produces any kind of return. It's the most powerful kind of seed. If you look throughout the Bible, it is the only seed that not only produces after its own kind, but it will meet any need that you have in your life. Any need. And so it's programmed with a harvest. It raises our expectation. When you sow a seed, it raises your expectation. Imagine a farmer going out into the field, just sowing seeds and just leaving it alone, never going back to check on when is the harvest coming. What's he doing? He starts watering that seed. He starts preparing that seed. He starts watching over it, and he's expecting. He's looking forward to the harvest. Same thing is true when we sow seeds, right? For instance, if you give somebody a gift for their birthday, there's an expectation. Your birthday comes around, you're getting a gift. Right? I take somebody out to dinner, even though I don't do it for this reason, right? And oftentimes I refuse to receive on the back end because I just want to be a blessing. But if I take somebody out to dinner and pick up the tab, I expect at least an offer to pick up the tab next time. Otherwise, I call you one way. You know some one ways in your life? Everything is always going one way. There's never any return. It's never two way. It's always one way, right? And eventually if you're only in one way relationships, you need to probably pull out of that relationship because one way relationships will always be abusive. By the way, even our relationship with God should never be one way. God can give us infinitely more than we can give him, but God expects things in return. Hello? When God saves your life, he expects to be able to use your life. Hallelujah. When God prospers you financially, he expects you to give him a tithe. Hallelujah. When you come into the house of God, God expects you to give him a praise. If God does something for you in your life, he expects you to say thank you. There are certain things that God expects of you. When God gives you a gift, he expects you to use it for his glory and for his honor. He expects you to glorify him. He expects you to be salt and light in this world. Even our relationship with God is not a one-way relationship. It needs to be a two-way relationship. Hallelujah. The power to raise our expectation and the power to resurrect something dead. Seed has the power to resurrect something dead. Seed has the power to produce life. This boat was dead. It didn't produce anything. When Jesus was given it as a seed, suddenly it produced. If you're going to see, receive the miracle with your name on it, you must sow a seed. Hallelujah. Number four, how do I receive the miracle? You need to obey even if it sounds crazy. Peter, James, and John fished all night. They were exhausted. Exhausted. They were washing their nets. They toiled. They were mentally spent. 
Jesus, the carpenter. Jesus, the rabbi. Who doesn't fish? They're fishermen, experts in the sea. Says, listen, let down your nets for catch. They say, Peter says, master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. But then he has this, nevertheless, at your word, we'll do it anyway. Can I translate it for you? That sounds a little crazy to me, God. I don't really think it's going to work, but because you said so, I'm going to consider that you're smarter than me, and I'm going to do it anyway. I've discovered something about God, that most of the instructions sound crazy. Or said another way, God purposefully asks us to do things that are counterintuitive. Why? Because that's what believing is all about. Believing is about moving from self-reliance to complete reliance on God. There was a missionary... And he was a missionary to a, to a land of cannibals. And cannibals don't trust anybody. Because they look at everybody, I might be somebody's next meal. Right? And he was ministering to them. And he was translating the gospel of John into their language so that he could read it to them and teach it to them and so on and so forth. And he and came across this one little phrase that, that John used all the time. And, and it was to, to believe in or to trust in. And the first occurrence of it is in John chapter 1 verse number 12. And, and he said, well, cannibals don't trust anybody. So, so how do I translate this in such a way that they'll understand it? And so uh, he, he asked one of his, the people who was serving him. He was sitting on a chair and he said to him, what am I doing? And, and, and the guy said, sitting at your desk. And he, and he rocked up the chair on the back legs. And he said, now what am I doing? He, he said, you're putting all of your weight on the chair. And that, he said, that's it, that's it. And he translated to trust or to believe in the cannibal Bible that he was trying, as putting the full, your full weight onto something. That's what it means to believe God. It means to put your full weight on God, to keep nothing in and of yourself, to trust God completely and wholly, and God will give us instructions when he wants to do a miracle in our life that will require us to put our full weight on him, completely trusting in him. God told Isaac in Genesis 26, he said, I want you to sow uh, into in a land of famine, in a land where there wasn't any rain, in a land where there was I want you to put seed in the ground. And he received a hundredfold return. What was he doing? Did it make sense? Lean all of your weight on me. The blind man in John chapter 9, we looked at him a few small weeks ago. Jesus put mud on his eyes, told him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. That didn't make any sense to the guy, but he put his full trust on Jesus. He wound up seeing. The widow woman from Zarephath in 1 Kings 17, she was down to her last bit. She was starving. Her kid was about to die. Elijah shows up, said, before you make any food for you, give it to me first. Didn't make any sense, but God blessed her with a harvest that last throughout the famine. Moses stood before the Red Sea. He was caught between a rock and a hard spot. The sea before him, the Egyptian army behind him. God said, hold out your rod, I'll part the sea. It didn't make sense, but he did it, and God did it. Why? Asking to put your full weight. Peter, James, and John, you fished all night. You're expert fishermen. You're washing your nets. Go pick up those nets again. Throw them out into the sea. Let's, let's go out into the deep. Throw them out there. We're going to catch some fish this time. That doesn't make any sense. But they did it anyway. Obey anyway. Listen, here's the word of the Lord. When it doesn't make sense, if God has told you to do it, you must do it 
in order to receive the miracle that has your name on it. The last thing I want to share with you today is you need to expect a payoff. Expectation. The breeding ground for miracles is expectation, is the atmosphere of expectation. Where there is no expectation, there can be no miracles. Let me say it again. Where there is no expectation, there can be no miracles. So what do you mean, Pastor? The Bible says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea tossed to and fro. Check out this point. God really did mean this. Let not that man or woman think that they shall receive anything of the Lord. For a double-minded man's unstable in all his ways. What is God saying? The atmosphere of expectancy is the breeding ground of miracles. Well, pastor, what if I'm not expecting? Well, you need to get some expectation in you. How do I get expectation in you? Step number one, submerge yourself in the word of God. Submerge yourself in the word of God. Get around people. Get around circumstance, uh, atmospheres where faith is being built and people who are receiving. Follow them who through faith and patience inherit the promises of God. You need to get your expectation up and you need to expect to pay off. Watch this. And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish and their net was breaking. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats, so they begin to sink. The scripture says they received a great number of fish. Normally, in the original language, they would only use one word to describe a large number. But in this verse, the Holy Spirit uses two words. It's the Greek polis plethos. It's, it's, it's a double word, which means a bigger than normal number. It means an exaggerated number. In other words, God said, I can't just use one number, one adjective to describe the kind of payoff that they got. I got to use more words so that you can get a real handle on what I did for How big was it? Well, it filled both ships and both ships begin to sink. Now, these ships were 32 feet long by 10 feet wide. They were about five tons each. In order to sink a five-ton boat, you got to have more than five ton of fish in the five-ton boat. So they had an excess of 10 tons of fish. That was their return. That's what they got because they believed God, that God was smarter than they What a return. If you're going to receive from the Lord, you've got to expect a payoff, both natural and spiritual. Thank God for the natural return. Thank you for 10 tons. By the way, just, just an aside. Um, if you were in the fishing business and you caught 10 ton of fish, would your business be broke? Are you sure? Because somebody told you the disciples were broke. Somebody told you Jesus was broke. Who told you? Not the Bible. Ten ton of fish. Ten ton of fish. Ten ton, that was such a large quantity of fish that they were able to go follow Jesus and still take care of their families for the whole time they were following Jesus. Do you know what prosperity is? Prosperity is never having to say no to God because you have such an abundant supply in your life. There's nothing standing in your way. So if God says do it, you can do it and you don't have to worry about how you're going to have your needs met. God will meet your needs. 
Hallelujah. But thank God for the natural return. When we believe God and we can expect a boat sinking, mind blowing blessing. Blessing. Given it shall be given unto you. How? Good measure pressed down, shaken together and running over shall men give unto your bosom. Bring the tithe into the storehouse and prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts. If I'll not open up the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing that there won't be room enough for you to receive. I'm God. I can do exceedingly abundantly above all that you ask or think. Thank God for the natural blessings in life. But every natural blessing has a spiritual counterpart to it. The natural blessing is the door to what it should do for you spiritually. Hallelujah. Are you hearing me? Thank God for those big harvests. And by the way, here's what I heard the Holy Spirit say. He wants to give you such a big natural blessing that it sinks both your boats. That you need other people in order to help you to corral the whole thing. God wants to give you such a blessing that you can be a blessing. If you try to take it all into your boat, you won't be able to get it all in. It'll go over. It'll get, it'll be a waste. You're going to have to call over another boat. Yo, y'all, come and help me with this. This right here, this is too much for me. I got excess right here. I remember one time, I probably shouldn't tell you this because you're going to get mad at me. Somebody's going to get mad at me. I was having such a blessed week. One time. I called my secretary in. I said, I just, I gave her a couple grand in cash. I said, I'm, I'm so blessed this week. Here's two grand in cash. I just want to be a blessed. She said, she looked at me like this. She said, for real? I said, yeah, for real. I said, it's too much. I, I need somebody to, to help me with this. See, God wants to bless you in that way so that you can be. Look at some of y'all just looking at me now in a different kind of way right now. Some of y'all looking like, Mom, Pastor. That's how God wants to bless you. But thank God for the natural return. But there is a spiritual return that pays. P, the payment of releasing you into your purpose. Peter, James, and John, they were fishermen. Do you know they didn't want to be fishermen? So what do you mean, Pastor? In Bible times, every, every Hebrew child would go to Hebrew school. And between the ages of 16 and 21, they would seek after a rabbi to be part of the rabbi, rabbi's Talmudim. And, and this was when a rabbi invited you to be their disciple and to follow them all around. And it was a great honor to be part of this rabbi's discipleship group. And uh, the way that they measured whether or not you would were worthy of being in their discipleship book or group was how well you knew the Torah. How well, imagine, you, most of them recited it by heart. The five books of the Bible recited by heart. And they quiz you on it. And if you knew the, the, the Torah well, then what would happen is that you would be able to be in that group. But if you didn't know it well, they would basically politely dismiss you and tell you to keep studying. And because you couldn't be part of one of the rabbi's discipleship groups and trained to be a rabbi, you would go back into the family business. Well, what were Peter, James, and John doing? They they were running the family business. They were running the fishing business. And, and, And sure enough, Jesus was about 30 when this event happened. That is when rabbis picked their group. 
That's why when rabbis invited people to be part of their Talmudim, and who does he pick? He picks the people nobody else wanted. He picks the people that didn't know their Bible as well as they should have known their Bible. But there was something in these young men that Jesus saw that nobody else saw because Jesus sees past our exterior to our potential. He sees the gold past the dirt. And if you look throughout all of the scripture, he's always done that. Moses stuttered and Abraham was too old and David was too young and Solomon was too rich and Naomi was too poor and Jonah ran and Timothy got caught up in a spirit of fear and Rahab was a prostitute and Gideon feared and Elijah was burned out and Martha worried too much and Noah got drunk and Paul was a murderer and John the Baptist was a weirdo. Hanging out in the wilderness eating locusts and wild honey. That's weird, y'all. I don't care what anybody says. If you're eating bugs for a regular diet, that's weird. But God chose them anyway to be part of his Talmudum. Their dreams had come true. They could finally do what they always wanted to do. They could be fishers of men instead of just fishermen. And I don't know about you, but I'm glad that God chooses us anyway. I'm glad that when we have an expectation that there is a spiritual payoff, that we are released into our purpose. Hey, pay, pay, pay. The assurance of who Jesus is. When Simon Peter saw it, He fell down to his knees saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. I'd be astonished too. Ten ton. The boats are sinking. Sometimes we forget when God gives us the miracle to realize how astonishing it is for God to do what we asked him to do. And so also were James and John, the sons of Deborah, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. So when they had brought their boats to land, they forsook all and they followed him. Look at the impact that the miracle has on them. Peter falls on his feet, dumbfounded and astonished because of what Jesus did for him in the natural. And here's what he says. He says, I'm a sinner. He calls him Lord at the beginning. He says, Master, nevertheless, Rabbi, nevertheless, at your word. But now he saw the miracle. Now he saw Jesus do something that was way beyond what he, he saw Jesus sink his boat with 12 tons of fish and he fell down and he suddenly realized how sinful he was and who Jesus was, that this wasn't just a rabbi. This was God manifest in the flesh. He was assured of who Jesus, every miracle that God does for you is to point you to the fact that Jesus is Lord in every way. The assurance, the assurance. But then why pay? Believing today yields dividends in your future. Believing today, I still remember when God called me out with my head down. I still remember when God touched my wisdom teeth. I still remember when God spoke to me. And do you know how many times I've revisited those places when doubt has tried to assail my mind? 
when I felt like I wanted to quit. And I've, I've revisited those places in my mind and in my spirit something rose up that said he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. That if he did it before, he can do it again. Something rose. That what happened yesterday is still paying dividends today in my life. Peter, James, and John got a miracle catch of fish. And in John chapter 21, Jesus was crucified and they all were dejected and they decide to quit and go back to fishing. John 21 verse 3 says, I'm going fishing. And James and John said, we're going with you. But as they were fishing after they quit because they had no Talmudim anymore, they had no rabbi to include them anymore because Jesus was crucified and everything they thought they now believed to be a hoax. So they went back to what they could do fishing again. But there was a call from the shore and the call from the shore was, hey y'all, cast your net on the other side of the boat. And when he heard that, what happened three years prior started to pay dividends again he jumped out of the boat he swam to the shore and he started fulfilling his purpose again what God did for you before will remind you of what God can do for you today he is the same God yesterday today and forever if he did it before he could do it again if he healed you before he could do it again if he provide for you before he could do it again if he healed your marriage before he could do it again god is a god that wants to do it again let's sing it come on